0: If you go to the Uganda border today, or if you go across all the East African borders, they have the largest, t- collectively, the largest trans-border movement of people in Africa, and the most elaborate transport network across borders, of ordinary people going to visit family, small traders to trade.
1: In November 2019, the East African community will mark 20 years since the signing of a treaty to re-establish the organization after it collapsed in 1997. The regional body has six members, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, Burundi, and South Sudan. To assess what the region has achieved, its challenges, and what the future holds for it, I spoke with veteran journalist Charles Onyango Obo, Following his special series of articles about the East African community, I highly recommend you check them out. This is the first episode of a four-part podcast series. I am Dickens Olewe. We are recording this podcast when Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta is hosting Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni for a two-day visit. A comment by President Kenyatta when the two leaders held a press conference has stuck with me. He said, I believe the fruitful discussions our delegations have had will be meaningful in terms of promoting trade, free movement of goods, services and people across our borders and our people-to-people interactions. That sounds like a speech that could have been given 20 years ago or even much earlier. Why have these issues not been fixed? It
0: is important to know that there is, uh, when you talk of the East Africa, or the East African community, you are talking of two entities. There is uh, the political and the bureaucratic one, which is constructed in uh, in the treaties. And uh, we can go back to 1917, when uh, Kenya and Uganda first formed the uh, uh, you know, customs union. And uh, then through to you know, the 60s, when we had the first East African community and East African community... Two, which is now in this 20th year. So that one tends to be governed by treaties and, uh, you know, those kind of, you know, infrastructure, infrastructure bills. But there is also the second East African community, which I kind of call the invisible community. Some people call it the social community. And, you know, the thing with that one, it's that it has always been a community of people which works look at it this way um if whereas um you know president kenyatta is talking as if he's in uh, the year 19 you know uh 67. if you go to the uganda border today or if you go across all the east african borders they have the largest collectively the largest transborder movement of people in Africa and the most elaborate transport network across borders of ordinary people going to visit family, small traders to trade. In East Africa, you have a situation where cross-community borders have this, you know, they coordinate their circumcision. So that part of the community has always really just worked. It is the official one which always needs to be serviced with agreements, with grand gestures by presidents. So one can understand why there is a lot of talking about, you know, the latter one, because often it is elusive. For example, um, you know, at this point we should ideally be talking of a, you know, a common currency. We should have advanced on political federation. That is the subject of treaties and broad policy aims. We are not there. But there are still anything between twenty to 50,000 Kenyan students who cross and study in Uganda. So it is, it's really a question of where do you choose to look for signs of weakness and uh, signs of strength.
1: Now, the other issue that is alive as we speak is this ongoing squabble between Uganda and Rwanda. Now, from your piece, you say that uh, what's being reported uh, in the uh, regional um, uh, media and also internationally, it seems as if there could be a war breaking out between the two. But you say that that is actually not an assessment that you will uh, go with.
0: No, I wouldn't, because there are uh, there are a couple of things that you know Uganda Uganda Rwanda relations have actually historically, uh, or, or not historically, at least in the last uh, twenty years. This where they are now has been the more dominant mode, and the quiet kind of peaceful uh, period are actually the exception. So it's 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 if. If you are looking at what is the normal relationship between Uganda and Rwanda, it is this this kind of contestation. The second is a slightly complicated one because you know one must realize that um, depending on how you count it, the fourth, fifth, or sixth largest group of Ugandans are Rwandan, you know Banyarwanda, because you know the Banyarwanda are a large Ugandan community. So it is going to be a very, very difficult thing to pursue a war because it would probably take place at the borders and Rwanda would be fighting against other Banya Rwanda or Uganda would be fighting a country at loss which has the fourth, fifth largest population across its border. So Uganda has got what analysts describe a Rwanda problem. And I don't think that uh, strategically Museveni is willing to risk that, apart from the fact that that Rwandan population is a very critical element of the Museveni political base. The third is that the cost is too high. Rwanda has, you know, um, made some dramatic uh, uh, recovery steps since the genocide. It is a model in many areas in Africa now, it is a rising star, it's the place, everyone goes to, its economy has averaged seven, eight percent growth the last 15 years, and and they're just not going to throw it away with the conflict. And if you look on the Uganda side, apart from what I spoke about earlier, you must realize that, uh, you know, Museveni, for Museveni and his establishment, the jewel for why they are seeking to stay in power, or almost the reason why they exist, is they need to harvest, to exploit Uganda's oil find. And the Uganda oil find, so to speak, is in the Albertine region. The Albertine region is near the DRC border, which is in many ways still an ungoverned space. But Rwanda has got the ability, in terms of conflict, to very quickly, you know, lay to waste the oil fields. And Museven knows that. And I don't think he's willing to take a risk that his oil fields could be laid to waste. So there is there is a lot of posturing. A lot of it has got to do with the internal politics of Uganda and Museveni's plan to stand for 2021. And he's already got that. He's got his politburo and and his parliamentary party to endorse him as a presidential candidate. And that's, there's a part of me that believes that he needed this um you know display to rally the base around him but i think that if you move away from those uh subjective and in some respects very cynical move that the objective factors on both sides of the border means that is even if they wanted to they can't afford a conflict
1: We've talked about Kenya, we've talked about Uganda, we've talked about Rwanda. But then there is Burundi, which seems to have a problem with Rwanda and uh, Uganda. And then there is also South Sudan, which seems to be riven in conflict. And then you have Tanzania, which is a, a reluctant member. If you are to give an overall assessment about the state of the East African community, what will that be? Would there be a score? I
0: think... On a scale of uh, one to ten, I would actually say six. And um, so, so take Burundi. Y- y- you know, I think that a lot of people don't quite appreciate that uh, one of the backers, the leading backers for a very long time of uh, of uh, Kruziza, President PM Kiguruziza and Burundi, was Kagame. And there is the the security Establishment, as opposed to the political establishment in Burundi, is not keen to pursue um, a conflict of any sort, vice versa, because there is a very significant element in the ruling Rwanda Patriotic Front, uh, which has what they informally call the Burundi faction. So it's a very, very important uh, part for that. If you look on the ground, The the biggest source of foreign exchange now for uh, Burundi business is being able to do cross-border trade. And, you know, um, a lot of it is, uh, for example, second-hand vehicles, which, which because of the exchange rates are being sold across the border, there is still a lot of trade. And, in fact, one of the biggest problems that both Burundi and Rwanda have is just being able... To control smuggling and the movement at their borders. So I think that they are in this conflict, there is a part of it which Burun, which Nkuruziza needs, because he is half to and there's a part of him that needs to show that he's very tough on, uh, on Kigali in order that, that, that the Hutu, you know, ex, you know, in extreme wing doesn't go against him. But but if you take out those political calculations, the objective factors generally, I think, look good. It is still risky, but I don't think it's in a dangerous phase. Tanzania, that is a much more complicated one, because uh, emotionally there is a part of Tanzania which is closely more weighted to, to southern Africa because of the history of its support for the liberation South African Liberation Movement. But the numbers, the numbers, if you just look at the numbers, the trade, the figures between Kenya and uh, and Tanzania are actually still very good. And there is something about Pangufli. He is a bit erratic. He is a parochial, you know, in some respects. Certainly he's no nyerere or is not uh, a jakaya but because he is inward-looking and a nationalist, eh? he's actually unlikely to pursue policies which engage him in a bigger diplomatic or economic conflict outside his borders. So he is actually a limited nationalist in that sense. So I don't think that his political instincts is going to to endanger. In a very significant sort of way, uh, his relations with Kenya. And
1: and what about South Sudan? I mean, you have a situation in May, uh, according to the peace agreement that uh, Salva Kiir and Riek Machar signed last September. They should have a transitional uh, government in place in May. And I went to a briefing, in fact, a couple of uh, weeks ago, where they were saying that the elements that were in the agreement, you know, the the security guarantees, um, among others, have not been implemented. How do you see that affecting uh, the East African community?
0: Um, I personally don't think that uh, South Sudan is going to come to some form of peace through these agreements. I think it is going to be a much more organic uh, process of exhaustion and uh, so I don't think that within the next one or two years we are going to see any significant uh, you know political shift or is is, is that is that exhaustion like they, the the
1: the the several armed groups will fight themselves until they're tired
0: yes but but also I mean, it is very important that, uh, you know, Uganda needs to reach a point where it gives up uh, propping up the Salva Ki regime, and it's not about to. And I think that perhaps the most important change in South Sudan, ironically, is going to come from Kenya. If you ask me when, I would say it would happen around 2022 with the, with the election in Kenya. So uh, my own sense is that we are going to have a, a law that the best we'll get from South Sudan is a, is a law interstate conflict. Um, I don't think we are going to have an end. And, you know, there is a lot of, if you see what is happening in Kenya, and particularly Uganda, Uganda actually sucked up a very large population of the South Sudanese refugees. But you should remember that these are guys who historically from the 50s have always been a large population of Uganda. And in parts of the country, they've just become absorbed as part of the population. So I think that East Africa, Kenya and Uganda in particular, have over time kind of developed very internal organic structure for absorbing um, you know the you know the Sudanese refugees, so we are just going to be them, kind of not exactly refugees, half refugees in some kind of East African limbo, as things slowly sort themselves out in Southern Sudan. And in that sense, you if if you look at uh, East Africa, it is basically a sockpit for the South Sudan crisis, and allows it you know or allows the broader south sudan nation not to totally collapse and exist in the region in some form
1: now the other thing that uh, you talked about charles which uh, i just want to hear you talk a little bit more about it was um you know what you said uh, you know talking about in 2010 when rwanda uh, and Kenya agreed to waive work uh, work permit fees for each of their citizens. And you you say in your articles that, you know, this essentially kick-started this regional, um, you know, movement, um, you know, where Kenyans can, is, can go to Rwanda and suddenly it spread. Across uh, the continent, and there was this Pan African movement of uh, and push for Africa, uh, African countries to open up. C- could you just talk a little bit about about that and and how that effect you see reverberated across the continent?
0: You know, these are some of the benefits um, of the expansion of the community. It it basically created new spaces because the way countries in East Africa do, they bring their domestic. Um, issues that they need to you know to deal with and find if the east african vehicle can be part of it now for rwanda and in some ways burundi which are very very small countries they actually needed um physical space to expand and kind of be evolved from some of the political and domestic pressures they have so when then Rwanda joined the community it was although it was the f- newest member it became the first to remove work permit requirement and dramatically ease um you know uh work permit and residence requirements for east africans now that forced a response from kenya because kenya you know kenya has it is it, it's kind of the east african Economy. It's the region's, the ESE's largest economy. And it's very important for the movement of capital and top-end professionals to be able to come into Kenya to do business here and, you know, to to work in the companies here without, uh, you know, uh, much hindrance. So as soon as Rwanda did that, Kenya realized that if it didn't respond... Um, you know, Rwanda would still it is standard. So Kenya then did the same, and actually up to now, they are the two East African countries which have the freest level of movement, particularly of East African labor.
1: And you say that the ICC cases against Kenyatta and Ruto could have had something to do with uh, uh, you know the opening up. You, you know,
0: because what happened is that at the time when then you know because then uh, after after Kenya responded to that. Um, Rwanda then said okay all Africans can come and and when uh, by the time Rwanda did that I think there were just about five four to five African countries where you could do that and most of them were the island states um, you know on the East African coast uh, Seychelles uh, uh, you know Mauritius but then the Post-election violence happened in Kenya in 2008. In 2013, President Uhuru Kenyatta and his deputy, who were facing IC charges, get elected. Now they then started this campaign to argue that look, uh, we are not going to be tried by an ICC court. This is, uh, you know, this is just politics. It is imperialist in a neo-imperialist plot. And they got the support of Africa. And I think that the important thing about the ICC, I keep saying is that the ICC is what finally made Kenya an African country. Because until that point, Kenya had always positioned itself as an important hub or gateway into the region, basically for mostly, you know, various british and american economic and political interests but the icc case turned kenya towards africa in a very dramatic sense and for that support the policy initiative that came out of it as you know as soon as kenyatta was reelected second time was to open throw open the doors for the rest of africans to come in without pre-arrival visa requirements.
1: Now, Charles, I want to um, talk about um, the African Cup of Nations and the qualifiers before we finish, but I want to go back to, um, uh, the. you know, we started talking about uh, Uhuru Kenyatta and uh, uh, President Museveni and their visit and what they were talking about. And one thing that I wanted to, you know, get your opinion about is about the infrastructure projects because in your piece you talked about how Uganda had rerouted an oil pipeline that initially was to go to um, uh, Lamu port uh, but now uh, the new line seems to be going all the way to Tanga in Tanzania and you know just seeing the the way they were you know the two leaders were speaking yesterday there seems to be some um, understanding that they need to be they are in this together and therefore they need to be m- more working closely uh, in these big projects, in like the SGR. Uh, I don't know whether, you know, is that is that what you're sensing? Like uh, there's now going to be some sort of uh, a joint policy move when it comes to these
0: grand projects? Well, they, they have stated so many times. So, in fact, in terms of articulating the policy, that has been there. I think the biggest problem has been in execution, uh, because uh, when... The so-called coalition of the willing was formed of Uganda, Rwanda, and uh, Kenya, and you know, a little bit South Sudan uh, in 2013. They basically, there were a couple of things they looked at. One, at this point, we should have a connected grid from here to uh, Rwanda. That hasn't happened. But the centerpiece of that was supposed to be the SGR. And Kenya has taken the standard gauge rail up to Nairobi. It's going to Mombasa. But there is a kind of a disjuncture because where does it go next? Does it go to Kisumu or does it go to Malaba to the, um, You know, today uh, and into Uganda? Now, two things have happened. Uganda actually now wants to build a line to South Sudan and not to Rwanda. And in many ways, it is in competition with Kenya, because Kenya has also been looking to build a line to South Sudan, because it assumed the logic of that would be, was based on the fact that Uganda was going to build the SGR as had been agreed or conceived in 2013 to Rwanda. So it's, it's, uh, I think that at this point, what is particularly between Uganda and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Kenya, there is the, they are making the right noises, but we are not seeing the appropriate action. And we are seeing a lot more action on the southern corridor that is through Tanzania to, uh, to Burundi and uh, Rwanda and from Uganda to Tanga. And in turn, that has got to do with, again, political calculation about, you know, where the economy of the region is going to be and where the balance of power, role, your political power is going to be in the region. And I think the calculation right now is that it is not going to be in the Uganda-Kenya axis.
1: The last question is about the African Cup of Nations. Four East African countries are going to Egypt, and I'm just curious about your thoughts about what that means uh, to the region.
0: Um, You know, as as, as far as the regional football is actually concerned, one of the most fascinating things is that if particularly if you start from the DRC, because, you know, TP uh, Mazembe in the DRC Congo is, I think, you know, without doubt the most Pan-African team. I think it has players from 21 African countries. But here is the thing, and it is probably also the most multicultural or cosmopolitan team in the world. But if you look at the football teams, um, you know the the you know East Africa. You know you know the main ones. virtually all of them have players from across the borders in very large numbers. And in fact, if you want to find the most players in uh, Ugandan players in any league, you actually go to the one to, to Rwanda and uh, and 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 Kenya. So I just think that this football is a very interesting conversation about social connection. But what intrigues me about it happening in Egypt is that, you know, Sisi has actually uh, moved away dramatically from the Hosni Mubarak and even Danua, you know, that period, which was much more Middle Eastern looking. And it is very, very aggressively looking southwards into the rest of Africa, they are trying to make the common market for East and Central Africa work. They are getting very competitive in the Horn of Africa along the Gulf of Eden and um, further down into the Indian Ocean. So, it's, so in that sense, it's a coming together of what you would call the second tier of where integration and fiscal economic competition is happening in the wider East African region. If you cut Africa in half, or you know, on the Indian Ocean side,
1: and the fact that Tanzania, Burundi, Kenya, and Uganda are there that, that would uh, hopefully soften some of the uh, uh, the challenges the the region is is following. Definitely a distraction, but uh, as to whether it will also help with uh, you know getting the region much more closer, then that's something to obviously watch.
0: oh uh, it, it does. I mean, just uh, just uh, just the way um, you know happens, particularly in the marathons. Eh? Um, it is. Uh, it, it creates a very interesting um, dynamics there. And you know, you you know, you Kenyans, you know, you you, you keep taking everything. But whenever I, uh, you know, Ugandans uh, beat you, you know, we feel very good. Or you know, and you know, your guys support <laughs> us. So I think it is very, <laughs> It's going to be a very interesting period.
1: Thank you for listening. In the second episode, we will look at the formation of what came to be known as the coalition of the willing and the sometimes complicated relationships between the leaders in the region. If you have any comments or questions, find me on Twitter. My handle is at Dickens Olewe. Until next time, bye-bye.